At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. One of my favorite parts of the Christmas season is traditions. I don't know if you're a fan of traditions. I love traditions, and I especially love the traditions of Christmas. And I imagine all of us, to some regard, have probably some traditions that we have and certain traditions that we love. One of my favorite family traditions that we get to do every year is that we have a Mexican dinner together on Christmas Eve. I don't know why this started. I'm not exactly sure how it started. All I know is I received it from my parents, and yet every Christmas Eve, I have a Mexican meal, and I'm a fanatic about this tradition. In fact, I was thinking about it this week. I remember in college, uh, one time I went down to surprise Alicia at her parents' house on Christmas Eve, and so I drove all the way down there, showed up unannounced, and realized pretty quickly afterwards that they were not having Mexican for dinner that night. But I was like, I gotta have Mexican. All my family's having Mexican, like this is what we do. So I literally, Alicia's mom got chips and salsa out of the cupboard to eat with their Christmas Eve dinner just so I could have some semblance of Mexican, right? Like that's how much I love traditions. And every Christmas Eve, we eat Mexican, and my brothers and sister and I, we share texts to each other, Merry Christmas, it's, it's kind of our thing. And one of the joys, I think, of Christmas is the traditions that we share with one another. But I think one of the other things about traditions is that if we are not careful, traditions can often and at times be used to ignore reality. How many of us have found ourselves in the midst of the holiday season carrying out a tradition, but feeling like our hearts and the reality around us is very different from the tradition that we are carrying on? Traditions are great. They're positive things. They're neutral things in many ways. They can be good, but sometimes they can cause us to try and focus on the joy of Christmas while actually ignoring some of the harder more painful parts of the season. You see, the reality is, for many people, the holidays bring with them pain and hardship. For some of us, it brings a lot of stress that we feel through this season of the busyness to prepare and get ready and execute and make things as perfect as we can. For some of us, we feel the pain and sting of family issues that might linger, strife, conflict, distance, disconnect. Many people feel the sting of the lost loved ones that they experience and wish were with them in the season. There's actually quite a bit of pain around the holidays. And I think the problem is sometimes that amidst our Christmas traditions and the expectations of holiday cheer, we often ignore, suppress, avoid, or leave those things unacknowledged. But the reality is that often makes the season even more challenging. We're told it's the most wonderful time of the year. 
But what happens when it's not? And what do we do when we don't feel that or that isn't the reality of what we're experiencing? On top of that, when facing those blue Christmases, and I'm not talking about just because of your romantic partner isn't with you, our traditions around the Christmas story I don't think often help us either. Many of us are familiar with stories of angels and shepherds and wise men. But how do those things relate when I'm facing a Christmas for the first time where I don't have my spouse with me because they passed away? Or I just walked through a painful divorce? Or I'm just struggling to make ends meet, let alone provide any sort of gifts to anyone in this season? I think we ask questions like, Where's God in the midst of those sorts of things? There's a lot of pain in the world, but does Christmas have anything to do with that? Well, I think it does. We're in the midst of a series that we've called Fulfilled, where we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew and his first two chapters, which tell about the birth and arrival of Jesus, the promised king. Matthew orchestrates his first two chapters around a series of connections with the Old Testament that he helps to say Jesus came to fulfill ancient prophecies that were told of the Messiah. And in doing so, Matthew desires for us to see not only the reality of who Jesus is, but how he connects and comes and matters for our world today. And this morning, we're going to explore a text in Matthew that is not part of our normal Christmas traditional stories. It's definitely not your first go-to passage. I don't think when many people tell the story of Christmas, the first thing they think of is a mass genocide of babies. We often seem to ignore those parts because it just doesn't seem very Christmassy. But as we're going to see this morning, it's stories like this that surround the birth of Jesus that actually matter infinitely for the struggles that we face, not only during the holidays, but in all the various parts of our lives. Because Jesus' birth doesn't ignore the reality of pain or suffering. It actually presents it and speaks a word to it. And what Matthew wants us to see today, and we're going to unpack from this text together, is that in Jesus... Our mourning, our suffering, our brokenness can actually be turned to hope. Now, in order to see that, we've got to kind of walk through this text together. Matthew connects his story and the telling of Jesus with a prophecy from the prophet Jeremiah. And in that connection, he unfurls both from Jeremiah and Matthew four movements in the text that help us see how Jesus comes to actually lead us from the place of mourning to a place of hope. And I want you to see each of these kind of movements in order. The first one we see actually comes right there at the beginning in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2. Hear it again. Then Herod... Remember who Herod was. Herod was the king of Judea, the area where Jesus was born. He was appointed by the Romans to be king uh, around 37 BC, and he reigned and ruled over that area for several decades. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Remember, Herod had sent the wise men to go and find Jesus and report back to him He said so he could come and worship him, but he really had ulterior motives, which was he wanted to destroy Jesus. 
If you go back and study Herod in history, what you realize is Herod was actually a hyper-paranoid ruler. He was obsessed with his power, his prestige, his control over the region. And anything that was perceived as a threat to Herod, ultimately he sought to take out. He killed wives, he killed children, like he was a paranoid, crazy ruler. So he naturally wanted to destroy Jesus. He sees him as a threat to his power, and he had sent the wise men off to go report so he could do that, but they don't come back. So in his craziness and paranoia, he became furious, it says, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. In response to his paranoia, Herod engages one of the most evil acts that any ruler ever could, a mass genocide of infants, all in hopes of destroying the one infant that he perceived as a threat to his very power. Now, what's interesting in this story to me, is that Matthew tells this at all. I mean, he's just been telling the story of promised angels coming to Joseph, the fulfillment of a baby born in Bethlehem. And then in a moment, he stops to tell the story of the slaughter of children amidst the arrival of the Messiah. Why? Well, because I think Matthew wants to show us something about what Jesus has come to do. But in order to do that, he begins this section of, of the story by bringing us face-to-face with the reality of evil. In the story of Jesus and his arrival, Herod is the archetype of evil and oppression. He's the power-hungry ruler, obsessed with controlling things his way. And in that, is willing to oppress, kill, destroy, and do what is ever necessary to protect his power, and control. And Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew, as he presents the story of Jesus, knows that Herod must be dealt with. This archetype of evil we're introduced into the story is not left lingering or wondering. And so Matthew works then to bring us face to face, not only with Herod, but also with his most heinous act of violence and oppression, He points in the story at the beginning that Jesus was born in the midst of evil. He was born in the midst of suffering. What surrounds his birth is not just angels on high declaring hallelujah, but actually the slaughter of children. And in many ways, he forces us to face the brokenness and evil that exists in our world. You see, I think the story and reality of Herod is not just significance because it was a reality that surrounded Jesus' birth, but I also think it highlights a reality that we often try to ignore in our lives many times, that we exist in a world that is evil, that is broken, that is riddled with sin. When we look at the world around us, not just locally in our city, but even globally, we continue to see that what dominates the world is brokenness. And no matter our best efforts, 
our best technological advances, our best intellect, our best collective energy, we as human beings just can't seem to solve the problem of evil in our world. So what we do is we ignore it. We avoid it. We minimize it. We seek to leave it unacknowledged until it creeps up and we're forced to deal with it face to face. Whether in a news story on our feed or whether the brokenness that we experience in our own lives, the reality for all of us is that we exist in a place and in a world marked by evil and oppression and brokenness. And we come to Christmas and the world tells us, put a nice face on it, smile, be happy. But Jesus' story invites us to a different reality. Jesus' story invites us to consider the reality of evil. Because when we do, when we look deeply at the reality of the brokenness of our world, it forces us to ask the question, what's wrong with this place? What's at the root of this thing? Why can we not seem to figure this out? And when we ask those sorts of questions, it causes us to recognize that the reality of evil is not something that just exists around us. It actually also exists within us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn won the Nobel Prize for Literature for his work in the, I think it was the 70s, called the uh, Gulag Archipelago. Solzhenitsyn suffered for a number of years in the gulags of Russia. He was arrested for a number of reasons, sentenced in the gulags. He eventually escaped, was brought to the West, and he wrote an incredible work kind of exposing and dealing with the oppression that he suffered, over while, suffered under while he was in the gulags in, in, under the Soviet rule. And in that work, Solzhenitsyn makes an interesting observation about the reality of evil. He says this at one point in the book. He says, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. What Solzhenitsyn observes and what Matthew highlights for us and brings to our attention is that sin and evil is not just the reality of the world, it's our reality. The reason we ignore Herod is because we know there's parts of Herod in our hearts, parts that remain unturned over to God, parts of our heart that still harbor at times darkness within them. And although we try to ignore them, we try to cover them up, we try to avoid them the best we can, the reality is we know that evil exists within us. And when we see in the story of Jesus the reality of evil, we're left asking the question, well, then what do we do? How do we respond to the evil in our world and the evil within my own heart? Well, in response to that, Matthew gives us the second movement in his text. It comes in verse 17. He connects this reality of what has happened in this genocide to the ancient prophecy from Jeremiah. Look at it with me again. He says, Then was fulfilled, there's that word again, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her 
children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So as Matthew highlights what Herod's done, he now connects the story back to this ancient prophecy of Jeremiah. And in order to understand why Matthew makes this connection, you need to understand a little bit of the context that it comes from. So if you have a Bible, turn with me for a moment over to Jeremiah chapter 31, because I want you to see this text and kind of the flow of its text and as it relates to the story in Matthew. Jeremiah 31 is part of a larger section written by the prophet Jeremiah where he speaks about the restoration of the nation of Israel after their exile in Babylon. But even as he does this, he actually acknowledges the kind of bitter pain and struggle that Israel faced in the midst of their exile. Again, hear what Jeremiah says now. Same words, though. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Ramah was a city about five miles north of Jerusalem. It would have been the place that the exiles, when Babylon came in and conquered the nation of Israel and led them into exile, they would have traveled directly through that city on their way from Jerusalem back to Babylon. And so it's a marker of the journey of exile, a removal from the promised land of God's people. Ultimately, this was because of Israel's sin against God, and you see that in the rest of the prophecy. But then the prophet goes on. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel was Jacob's second wife, one of the ancient fathers of Israel, and his famous wife. She's pictured here as the mother of Israel, and she is weeping Because her children, in being led away to exile, are experiencing the pain and suffering of oppression and evil. Matthew takes this story and he begins now to connect it back to the story of Jesus and the reality of exile and suffering that are being experienced at the hands of Herod. In the biblical motif, not only is Israel in exile, but all of creation is in exile, removed from God's presence because of our sin, and therefore we experience oppression and evil and suffering. But what Matthew wants us to see is the right response or the first response to that reality is actually to lament, to grieve over the reality of evil and suffering and oppression. Rachel weeps for the pain, in the same way the mothers weep and grieve over the loss of their children. This is the first step in ever facing evil, whether in our world or in our lives, is first to go to the place of lament. Lament is the work of sitting before the reality of brokenness, suffering, sin, and evil, not running from it, turning from it, ignoring it, minimizing it, but facing it in its reality until our hearts are moved towards grief. Matthew doesn't, in the passage, run from the pain that surrounded Jesus' arrival by the hands of Herod. In fact, he invites us to stare deeply into it and then consider the role that lament plays in grieving over the evil then and the evil that we face now. Lament is an important part in the journey towards hope. Because until we lament, we leave evil unacknowledged, ignored, and minimized. And when that happens, our hearts don't grieve to the place where we begin to look for the hope and the deliverance that we ultimately need. 
Sin has left all of our lives cut off from the presence of God. Yet too often, the pain we experience from this is left undealt with. Lament becomes the way in which we begin to move back towards God's promise. You could think of lament like this. Imagine this Christmas Eve. I don't know what your plans are, but just imagine this is with, with me for a moment. Imagine Christmas Eve, you get all of your family together. And you're going to have a great big Mexican meal, because that's the way you got to celebrate Christmas Eve. <laughs> right? But imagine with me, you're going to have a, a good dinner together, and you're sitting around, you're having conversation. If you have siblings, maybe they're with you, your parents, whoever, whoever's there. And imagine in the midst of this family meal, suddenly a fight breaks out. Some of you might not have to imagine that. That might just be your, your Christmas experience, right? But imagine a huge, massive fight. Get, words get thrown. People get yelled at. Food gets thrown. It like goes nuclear. And pretty soon everybody is just like, I'm out and pieces off to their rooms, houses, whatever. But the problem is you have plans the next morning to come back together to open presents, to have breakfast and celebrate Christmas. You got to keep the tradition, right? That's what we do. So you come together that morning And you're all in the same room by the tree, but things feel real awkward. Like, you're kind of sheepish, nobody's saying much, you don't know what to say, you share those pleasantries, you've all been in that, right? And suddenly, finally, someone in the room can't take it anymore, and they just say, can we talk about last night? Like, can can we talk about it? And immediately, everyone in the room, first they're awkward, but the natural feeling is, oh, thank goodness someone acknowledged it. Thank goodness we're not just ignoring that. And you begin the conversation and begin, eventually you can move towards healing and restoration and growth. And what was awkward now moves towards something hopefully better. That's the role lament plays in our lives. Lament allows us not to ignore the dysfunction and brokenness and sin. Lament steps in and says, hey, can we talk about this? Like, I just lost someone I love. I'm not sure I can go through the traditions this Christmas. I'm really struggling. And I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. And I'm not even sure if I have hope. Let alone I'm going to try to put a smile on and be holly and jolly. Right? Lament is the way in which we come to say something's off, something's broken, and I need someone to help me move towards healing, where we ignore lament, where we ignore sitting before suffering to the point where our hearts are grieved, we ignore then actually looking towards the true deliverance that we need. And what Matthew invites us to in connecting with Jeremiah is to say, weep, weep because your children are no more. But as you weep, you begin to discover the next movement in the story. You see it in Jeremiah, so let me show it to you there first, and then you'll see it in Matthew. So this is what he says. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord. So he steps into the place of mourning, and he says, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future. So in the place of deep mourning, God meets the sufferer and speaks good news. He says, don't don't continue in that place. There's a deliverance coming. 
There's a thing that's going to move you from the place of evil back to where I want to bring you. There is a hope for your future. And in the midst, not separate from, in the midst of lament comes the word of hope. And hope begins to emerge. You actually see this in Jesus' story as well. Go back to chapter 2 of Matthew. Again, hear the quote, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now remember, a good Jewish audience doesn't just have that verse, they have the whole section in the back of their head. So they know the pattern that Jeremiah is already writing. And watch how Matthew follows it. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Remember, Jeremiah had the word of hope in the midst of suffering. Here you have suffering in exile. Jesus goes to Egypt to escape. He's displaced from his homeland. And yet in the midst of that, God does something dramatic. Don't miss those words. Herod dies. The archetype of evil, the one who stands, who brings oppression, the one who causes the most heinous act that surrounds the birth of Jesus, his evil tyranny does not continue. It ends. And in that place, the gospel comes to say, come back home. There's hope. And right in the midst of Jesus' story, hope emerges. There's the turn from the reign of evil to the emergence of hope. And ultimately, as we'll see, the promise of return. Matthew reminds us by connecting these two stories that we, in our own lives, can have hope because evil and tyranny eventually are brought to an end. That even the great archetypes of evil eventually do not survive and their tyranny is stopped. And in the worst, amidst the worst part of Jesus' story, he signals that evil doesn't get the last word and hope begins to emerge. Maybe think of it like this. I love superhero movies. Anybody with me? Anybody loves superhero movies? So, okay, great. Few of you. Like, I, I can't get enough. Like, I, I watch them all. Give me Marvel, love them, every single one of them. DC, tolerate, they're okay. But I still watch them, right? Like, I'm full on, I love superhero movies. And in every superhero movie, I know it's coming because it's in every one, but the moment I love the most is the turn. You know it. Think of your favorite movie. There's always the moment in the movie where you think the hero's defeated. Whether it's the Avengers before Thanos or you name the movie, right? There's the moment where you think evil's too big here. It's too strong. It's going to win the battle. And even as much as we know what the end of the story, because we know how every movie ends, we still feel that for a moment. And then there's the turn. The hero's knocked down. He gets back up. The support he thought would never arrive suddenly comes. And there's that moment where hope emerges and where you go, oh, evil's not going to get the last word. The story isn't over. That ultimately, the suffering that we experience will come to an end. And we see this in Jesus' story. This turn from the moment where you think, babies dying 
oh, but the archetype of evil doesn't continue. And in many ways, I think what Matthew's actually doing here is foreshadowing the greatest emergence of hope, which is ultimately to come. Matthew walks through this story, and I can't unpack all this for you today, but if you go back, Jesus is presented as the promised king, and he's pitted up against this false king, Herod. And they go back and forth in the story until this moment when Herod dies. His reign ends. But Jesus continues on showing that he's the king until he also dies. And on a criminal's cross, he's crucified, dead and buried. But he doesn't stay dead. You see, the great emergence of hope in the story of the world is the resurrection. It's not that our king just died, but that he didn't stay dead because in his death, he overcame evil and suffering and oppression and tyranny. He faced those things head on. He didn't run from them. He ran towards them to pay the price to deal with them. Jesus' story, he doesn't run from genocide. He's born in the midst of one. He doesn't hide from darkness. He seeks to be light in the midst of darkness. Jesus doesn't run from people who are broken and sinful. He runs to them, promising hope and healing and deliverance. He goes to the cross for all our sin and evil. He takes it upon himself, but right in that moment, right when you think evil's won, it's killed the king. He's done, buried. He's just like Herod and every other one that follows. Hope emerges. And Jesus walks out of the tomb and announces evil doesn't get the last word. That's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of Jesus' story. That if you're facing whatever's causing you to mourn, whatever evil and sin and brokenness and suffering that you experience in your life, that it doesn't get the last word over you. That if you're in Jesus, there is hope for a future for you. A great hope. What is that hope? Well, we see it in the last movement. It's the promise of return. Again, you see the pattern in Jeremiah. If you go back in Jeremiah, he ends that section of his prophecy by saying, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. What does Jesus do in his story in Matthew 2? And Joseph, he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And ultimately, we're going to see that's going to fulfill another prophecy, but that's for Christmas Eve. But what does Jesus do? He returns back to the land. You see, the movement of the way in which God leads his people from the place of mourning, not only comes in the emergence of hope, but it comes from the promise of return. That God will return his people to their land. That exile ends and they are brought into the land of promise. Israel walked this path in being restored. Jesus walks this path in being the savior for humanity, and then he invites all those that would follow him to experience that same path in their own lives. What God promises to us 
in the work of the gospel is that there is a land to which we will return, a place for us to go. What is that land? What is that promise to which we will return? Well, we see it pictured most beautifully in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea is the symbol of evil in the Bible. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And catch it, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, that's the promise That's the land, the new heavens and new earth that God wants to lead his people towards, the place where there is no more suffering, where there is no more sickness, where there is no more pain, where every tear is wiped away, where there is no more mourning. The path of the gospel is a movement from mourning to life, from suffering to joy to a world where suffering ends. That's the promise. That's the promise of Christmas. That's the path Jesus walks, not only in his arrival, he walks through it throughout his life, and then he invites all that would put their trust in him to experience that same path for themselves. That though you are in exile, you can be restored and brought in to God's new creation. And the good news is, That's not something you have to wait for entirely. You can begin to experience that now when you put your faith in Jesus. Because when you hear the good news, the good news that's brought in the midst of suffering, and you receive it by trusting that Jesus is the promised king, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he rose again, what you find in that place is the emergence of hope. And hope sustains us until God brings us home. And so Jesus' story shows us a path that he then invites us to walk. In Jesus, our mourning turns to hope. We find what we need in the midst of whatever suffering and evil we are facing in our lives. What is true of his story can be true of your story as well. But because of that, here's the question I want to leave you with this morning. As we step into Christmas week to celebrate it together, where do you need to see the story of Jesus show up in your story? Where are you facing the reality of sin and evil in your life, in your heart, in your experience? Where do you need Jesus to step in and bring hope to your weary soul? And what I want to invite you into as you answer that question is that maybe, maybe for a moment this Christmas season, we can stop pretending. We can stop covering up our pain with the holly and the jolly. We can stop acting like it's not present with us, and we can just be honest about our experience. 
We can be honest about the brokenness that we still experience in our hearts and lives. Because when we do that, when we face that reality and we lament over it, God brings the gospel to bear on our hearts and we find hope in the promise of his return. Jesus invites you in this season to look deep into your heart because he wants to speak the truth of what he's done for you to that place. And as he does that, the call then is to trust and follow him. That's always the call. For some of you, that might be the call for the first time. You've never put your faith in Jesus, but you know the brokenness that's in your heart. The good news is Jesus came to do something about that. And he invites you to experience freedom this morning by putting your faith in him and following after him. But that's still the call for those of us that have made that decision. We constantly look at the places of our brokenness in our hearts and our lives and our world and we come back to Christ in lament and say, Jesus, help me to trust again. Speak the gospel to me again. And as we do, we find hope in that place. So my hope this morning is that you would walk the path and follow the path of your Savior as he brings good news to your tired and weary soul. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.